Welcome to SDG, a podcast about the UN Sustainable Development Goals, 17 goals adopted by the United Nations General Assembly on 25 September 2015. The 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, a plan of action to transform our world for people, planet and prosperity, was adopted at the UN Summit gathered for the adoption of the post-2015 Development Agenda. All 193 member states unanimously committed to implement the plan to achieve the 17 Sustainable Development Goals and 169 targets over the next 15 years. The goals encompass a determination of ending poverty and hunger, ensuring humans live in dignity and equality in healthy environments, that protect them from degradation through sustainable consumption and production, urgent action on climate change, supporting the needs of present and future generations, and they foster peaceful, just and inclusive societies living prosperously. I'm your host, Dominic Billings, and in this episode, we're joined by Jodie Lightfoot, Director of Campaign for Australian Aid. Jodie's work aligns most closely with Goal 17, Partnership for the Goals, specifically Target 17.2, which is, and get ready, it's a bit of a mouthful, developed countries are to implement fully their official development assistance commitments including the commitment by developed countries to achieve the target of 0.7% of gross national income toward official development assistance to developing countries and 0.15 to 0.2% of gross national income toward official development assistance to least developed countries. Additionally, official development assistance providers are encouraged to consider setting a target to provide at least 0.20% of gross national income toward official development assistance to least developed countries. Just to get some jargon out of the way, which may be unfamiliar to some listeners, gross national income, which was featured in the um, the aforementioned target, is defined as all economic output created by the residents of a country. This includes gross domestic product, or GDP, as many may be familiar with, but also includes income from foreign residents and subtracts income from non-residents. Additionally, official development assistance is essentially just a a synonym for foreign aid. So, to rephrase target 17.2 in more layman's terms, it's asking rich countries to honour their previous commitments to giving $0.07 on every $100 made in the country as aid. So rich countries are additionally asked to give $0.15 to $0.20 on every $100 made in the economy to a list of 47 countries, which are officially known by the UN as the least developed countries. The Campaign for Australian Aid is a movement of people, organisations, communities and businesses who believe Australia can and should do more to help build a better, fairer future for all. The campaign is made up of up to 50 of the country's leading aid and development organisations, including World Vision, Oxfam and Save the Children, just to name a couple. Before we get into the episode, some good news developed not long after Jody and I spoke. The Australian government announced at the beginning of November and added $500 million to assist in the rollout of a COVID-19 vaccine to the Pacific and Southeast Asia. The $500 million will be rolled out over three years to ensure full immunisation coverage for the Pacific and will make a significant contribution toward Southeast Asia. On the back of some vindication for Jody and the Campaign for Australian Aid's work, specifically targeting exactly such an outcome, let's hear from Jody now. Thanks very much for joining us, Jody. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Dom. Um, Jody, would you be able to tell us a little bit about the um, the campaign, please? 
The Campaign for Australian Aid is a coalition of about 30 of Australia's aid and development groups. And so we're coming together because we believe that we can achieve more by working together than we can alone and primarily focus on calling on the Australian government to increase our international development assistance. Mm. And is it correct at the moment you're um, the focus of the campaign is um, a campaign that um, Campaign for Australian Aid is calling End COVID for All with the focus about the, the um, I suppose, the effects on poverty and aid that, um, that coronavirus has had. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So End COVID for All started as a collaboration between Campaign for Australian Aid, the peak body of international development groups known as the Australian Council for International Development, and another coalition of Christian aid agencies known as Micro Australia. So we kind of came together to develop this campaign in response to the COVID crisis. Mm. I don't, um, uh, I've been involved um, in the campaign in the past, as you know, I've, I was familiar with the, um, the ACFID um, component of the, of the alliance. Is, could you tell us a little bit about MICA and their, their background? Yeah, so MICA Australia formed as a group that were largely taking action on the Millennium Development Goals. Mm and you know uniting uh, through the identity of their christian faith and so um yeah they've done a lot of great work um in advocating on issues like climate change and poverty they run a great uh, kind of tactic where they bring hundreds of christians to parliament each year um, train them up it's a multi-day thing and then often meet with you know a hundred plus mps over the course of a, a couple of days so they're seen as a very effective group and um, have played a really um, a, a really leading role in the end COVID for all campaign. Yeah, and am I correct, Jody? Is was the alliance both Mica and um, all those um, ACFID um, organisations that you mentioned were they effectively the same alliance that was um, responsible for Make Poverty History? Well, the Make Poverty History Alliance rebranded as Campaign for Australian Aid, yeah, but there okay. is crossover. Like there are. Um, there are organisations that are members of Campaign for Australian Aid, as well as MICA, as well as ACVID. So mm. there is that crossover. Before, I suppose before you had become involved with Campaign for Aid, you mentioned um, at the at the top um, about the, I guess the focus of about campaigning towards um, the government. Had your focus um, in your own work prior to becoming involved with Campaign for Aid been more focused on uh, influencing government? Yeah, I think my journey started at, uh, with a group called Oak Tree and, yep. and as a volunteer. And within that work, that was yeah primarily advocating for the government to increase our international development assistance. Mm. And that's really been my the journey that I've been on over the last decade has included that. And whilst I've been advocating for on the issue of poverty, I've also been involved in other campaigns like Love Makes a Way, advocating for compassion treatment of people seeking asylum and um, helping to build um, faith-based justice movements like Common Grace and uh, helping to bring a Christian voice for climate action. And so it's, it's been, I've been involved in a number of different issues, but certainly extreme poverty has been at the heart of it. Yeah. What does, what does uh, I guess, the, the act or the process of campaigning Tend to look like is it is that a lot of emails is it um trying to get like a 
a whole bunch of grassroots people on board? Like what's, I guess, what are the means of campaigning that you feel are most effective, um, Jody? Well, in the end, COVID for All campaign, the approach that we took was a, trin- a twin track where uh, we kind of integrated a lobbying strategy with a public advocacy strategy. And so the role of the lobbying strategy was to really make a national interest case to the government, which is the kind of arguments that they can get on board with to expand our aid program. And the public advocacy track was really to demonstrate political cover so um, the government could actually implement that in policy. And so what that actually looked like, you know, there were tactics like uh, we ran, um, you know, a selfie mask activation where we brought together hundreds of CEOs, influencers, refugees, disability groups, etc., um, to post a selfie wearing a branded and COVID for all mask um, mm. all at the same time. And we created like a virtual mask filter to enable thousands of Australians to participate as well. And so um, that was kind of one of the tactics. I think probably the most effective ta- thing that we did was just focus on building an alliance that was beyond the aid and development sector. Mm. And so we had groups like the Nurses and Midwives Association uh, we had groups from Islamic Relief to Hillsong. Um, we had business groups like Thank You and, uh, you know, people like the chairman of Woolworths, Gordon Cairns, uh, writing op-eds on the importance of international development in the financial review. And so what we're hearing from ministers in this campaign is that this kind of cross-sector, beyond-aid voices um, has been the most impressive part of it. So. There's about 230 organisations across different sectors that have joined the campaign and, and taken action. Mm. Um, and, you know, one of the ways we displayed that was a full page ad in the Financial Review um, to kind of highlight the breadth of the organisations involved and then regularly trying to feed this into um, essentially influencing the Expenditure Review Committee, which is the group of decision makers that uh, decide on aid budget outcomes. Hmm. I'm curious, I hadn't given too much thought about this before in the past. You kind of mentioned um, the involvement of, for instance, like Market Challenge. Um, but obviously, I know um, that uh, quite a number of the organisations from the that have um, formed the alliance um, from the beginning uh, are NGOs, which might have a faith-based component. Would you say, like, anecdotally, just completely anecdotally, would you say you have a sense of more engagement from those faith-based communities in contrast to more secular organisations, say, would you say Oxfam and WaterAid, for instance, they're secular? Is that, am I safe in saying that? I would say so, yes. Yeah. Do you, again, just anecdotally, would you say there's more or just uh, equal um, engagement from faith, faith-based NGOs versus secular yeah, that, that is hard to say. Um, I, I wouldn't say necessarily so. I would say there are some secular organisations who really dive into the advocacy space, um, like Oxfam, for example, are a key player within that. And then you have other secular aid organisations that don't dive into the advocacy space as much. Mm. And set, same with faith. You have faith groups that dive in and other faith groups that hold back a little. Yep. And so I think it's predominantly determined by other factors but I have seen the power of faith 
um, you know, across Christianity, across Islam to really drive people towards action. Mm. Um, and, you know, part of my journey is it came from exploring spirituality. Yep. Uh, and I felt this deep desire to act um, arising out of that. And so mm. um, faith can be very powerful motivator for action. And I, I, but it's not the only um, motivator for action. Yeah. With, I feel like you might possibly have the statistics um, somewhere in your head, Jody. And if, if you don't, please um, don't think any less of my question. But would, is, it, is there quite a disconnect between um, the amount of aid levels that, that the public um, perceives Australia to give in contrast to the reality? Does that make sense? Yeah, there's a huge disconnect there. So, I mean, there's been a number of different um, polls and uh, research done on this, um, but it's around about the, the public estimate that we give approximately 15% of our mm. gross national income. And in reality, you know, as of now, we give, um, you know, 22 cents in every $100. So yeah. um, the disconnect is, is huge. Yeah. Again, I might be um, pushing your ability to keep numbers um, in your head, but let's say both both you and I are relatively the same age in our, mm. in our 30s. I'm getting that right, Jody. am I? You yeah. are. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. Okay, in let's say in our uh, lifetime, maybe last couple of decades, what's has the aid levels, and again, I better say something from the outset, which is, the international aim for any listeners that aren't aware is 0.7% of gross national income yep. over the past couple of decades. What's kind of been the, the rise and fall of that level? Yes. I mean, Australian aid was actually at its highest point in the early 1970s and mm. it was a, it was above 45 cents and every $100 at that point. And from the 1970s to 2004, uh, the overall trajectory was one of decline across both Labor and Liberal governments. Mm-hmm. And um, 2005 was a significant year because that's when John Howard announced to the UN that um, he would essentially double aid by 2010. And this was really an unprecedented commitment within our nation's history. Mm. Um, then when the Rudd government got elected in 2007, uh, Rudd then expanded the aid program at an even faster rate at what Howard was um, advocating for. But what we had at that point was a bipartisan consensus to increase the aid program to 50 cents in every $100. Um, and so that was an, an excellent period for our aid program. Um, but then, you know, 2013, I believe, came and under the Abbott slash Turnbull government, aid began to be slashed dramatically um, to the point where it reached um, the lowest level in our nation's history. I think Mm. it got down to about 21 cents in every $100 of gross national income. And so aid's kind of been through, um, uh, yeah, on the chopping block over the last, uh, you know, seven years, I suppose. Mm. Um, In the 2019 election, we had a glimmer of hope. Uh, as Labor announced that if they were elected government, they would increase aid by $1.6 billion over four years. Um, but you know, as we know, they weren't elected. And within the federal budget, that recently passed. 
the coalition actually made the first increase to Australia's international development financing um, to the tune of $305 million. Um, and that was, that was the first increase of a government in eight years. Mm. Is it, would you say it's fair to say that uh, in terms of uh, how the political parties respond to um, eight levels, whether it's heading into an election or between elections when they're um, uh, creating their platform, which I know is, um, that's been a central um, a kind of a pivot point for um, uh, Campaign for Australian Aid when those camp- um, pardon me, when those platforms have been um, formulated. Do you notice that the parties tend to follow what they perceive the electorate wants or it's more top-down, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's a number of considerations and I think, I think the... Um, the global financial crisis and the rise of nationalism around the world has created a more difficult environment to have discussions about international development and to gain commitments. So I think that's been one key driver. But I think when you look at, if you look through the research literature on what really drives governments to increase aid, there are a number of factors, but one of the most important factor is the willingness of the prime minister to either increase or decrease aid. And you saw that with, you know, Howard, you saw that with Rudd, you know, Rudd being personally very committed. You've seen that in other countries with um, people like Angela Merkel and the, mm-hmm. uh, in Germany and, and in the UK. And so I think um, that's a, a really important factor. Other factors are things like um, the presence of aid champions within the party in government, mm-hmm. um, the broad-based party support uh, from MPs within the party because whilst it's the decision of the expenditure review committee if they've got support of the broad party room it's more likely to get through and Mm. so the public sentiment does fit within that and so it's interesting within the recent federal budget the government actually increased our international development financing by 305 million dollars but it wasn't uh, it wasn't like promoted by government as an increase. It was kind of hidden in a way that they didn't have to say it was an increase, (laughs) but it was there. And so that um, one potential reason for that was that they don't want to be seen as increasing aid, you know, during a global pandemic when there's um, high debt. And so I think what the the public mood does matter, um, but kind of the extent of the, the level of campaigning as well as those other political factors and Obviously, economic factors are also important. On the back of the, um, at the time that we're recording, we're probably maybe f- five weeks um, since the the uh, federal budget was just announced. On the back of your end COVID for all campaign, were you relatively happy, happy given what you just said, or was that kind of aroundabouts where you're expecting in terms of um for the aid levels to be? Um, adjusted uh, in line with like a a COVID-19 budget? I think what we can say is that it could have been a lot worse. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we've seen repeated cuts for for many, many years, and this was the first increase by a government in eight years. And so I think, you know, you have to celebrate the win when it comes. And so 
uh, given the context that it could have been worse, um, I do think this is something worthy of celebration. Um, at yep. the same time, you know, it, it's by no means perfect and we've got a long way to go. There were you know, cuts to um, disability programs in the budget. There were cuts to a number of programs like Afghanistan, for example, Pakistan. And we've got a long way to go um, before we're actually showing global leadership and stepping up as a good global citizen and um, as a leader within our region. And so I think we can both celebrate the win whilst recognizing we've got a way to go. Yeah. Again, this just occurred to me, have you noticed, um, obviously the pandemic affects, I suppose, every every person individually on some level or another. Have you noticed with the End COVID for All campaign, has there been, and again, this, this might, the answer to this might be quite anecdotal but have you noticed um are people quite engaged about the international repercussions i suppose in the developing world because i feel like in the news media we we do hear a lot about um the western countries whether it's europe and um western europe particularly and also the u.s do you, has it have you felt that the end covid for all campaign is um uh, gained particular traction in contrast to, I suppose, just uh, the regular um, campaign that you'll be conducting all the time? Yeah, I think we we have broken into the media to an extent. So, I mean, the end COVID for all messages have been featured in all major publications. Um, we launched on Sunrise. And so, I mean, one yeah. of the key messages that we're using in the campaign is that this crisis doesn't end for anyone until it ends for everyone. Mm. And I think what COVID presents is an opportunity to link the issue of international development um, uh, and through, through an issue that Australians can relate to in a fairly unprecedented way. I think Australians um, really do understand that, um, you know, uh, COVID spreading in Myanmar can affect people in Melbourne. Yep. Um, there's an interconnection both with health, with economy. Uh, our interconnectedness is more evident than ever before. Mm. And I think that's an opportunity to share kind of the importance of global cooperation because COVID is one example of where we do need global cooperation to solve a global problem. And if we can get it right with COVID and we can help people to understand the importance of global cooperation as you know we're seeing the rise of nationalism around the world mm -hmm. i think that's going to better prepare us to solve other major crises like climate change and other areas of inequality as well yeah um taking a more personal tact jody what's what's been your journey to um to have become as passionate as you are about the um i suppose the distance between uh that 0.7% of gross national income that Australia ought to be and has repeatedly committed to um, giving over the years and what it's actually been. What was, well, yeah, what has been your, your path to, to, um, to feel so strongly about what you do? Uh, well, as I mentioned a little earlier in the conversation, Dom, uh, some of my passion kind of was born out of an exploration of of spirituality and so mm -hmm. when I was at university I was studying music and um, that was wonderful 
and during that time decided to attempt to try and follow the teachings of Christ. Mm. And one of the, the central teachings is to love your neighbor. And I was thinking that, well, so many people in the world are living in poverty or are oppressed and loving your neighbor has to include is seeking to enhance their freedom. And so I had this desire to want to do something, but I didn't have any friends who were involved and had no idea what it would look like to be involved. Um, after a little bit of looking, I decided to join Oak Tree. This is a group of um, young people, an organization run by young people tackling extreme poverty and was blown away by the level of creativity, leadership and energy um, that these young people were showing. And um, doing some really excellent movement building work. And I think my time at Oak Tree started to teach me a theory of change that if you can build a movement um, strong enough to create change, that can help to uh, you know, address some systemic issues that is leading to a lot of poverty and oppression. Mm. And so, yeah, I basically joined the dots between loving your neighbor, for me, um, has a lot to do with helping to build people-powered movements to address injustices of our time, and um, I think I think that was really kind of where it started. And since then, it's really been um, reflecting a lot on just the preciousness of life in a way. Mm. Um, thinking about how you know, and I hope this doesn't get too philosophical, but, mm. you know, for billions of years, um, we just haven't existed. And suddenly, out of nowhere, we're here. And mm. we didn't do anything to deserve to be here. We just popped up and not existing as like an ant or a snail, but as human beings able to have conversations like this, able to dream um, and able to experience the beauty and the goodness of life. Mm. And for me, that's really where injustice becomes so offensive because we have the opportunity to ex to live these um, wonderful lives and experience the goodness of life. And the idea that people would spend that life being exploited um, sexually, being exploited under forced labor, being oppressed, um, dying needlessly from diseases um, because they can't access something like a vaccination or clean water. Um, that makes it so offensive. And so I think, yeah, just regularly thinking um, almost spontaneously about how grateful I am to be alive, um, to have had the opportunity to experience the goodness of life. I want to do my part to um, help other people experience that too. Yeah. If, I suppose, how, like, would you say you experience frustrations like whether it's professionally like in um like in your role like if you've been working toward an increase in aid for a couple of years and then an election comes around and or a budget's announced and the results just like perhaps you don't feel like they fall the way you would want them how do you i guess suppose yeah kind of like i don't know whether you want to call it like emotionally or intellectually like how do you sort of um reconcile those setbacks or do you feel like you need some glories along the way does that make sense it, yeah it makes total sense dom and it it can be hard like i would start with the position of gratitude that just recognizing that i'm extremely privileged to be able to do this kind of work um 
yeah, so it, it, firstly, just um, very grateful that I get to do this. Um, yeah, it does feel like an uphill battle at times because you're often working in very short time frames, um, trying to do a lot within those short times um, with limited resources and trying to do things that are fairly significant, like get very powerful decision makers to act in particular ways, which is hard to do. And so most of the time you don't win the campaigns because of um, what, you're, what you're trying to shift. And so I think, um, like I went through a really difficult mental health um, period uh, a couple of years ago, and that was in large part because I wasn't managing my emotions and managing my mind in a way that could kind of bear the toll of setbacks and mm. the lifestyle of kind of go, go, go activism. Mm. And what was interesting was that when I started to share my story with other people, I was just shocked about how many people had the same story. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I had not known it was that bad. And I previously, now I've, I've just got activist friends who are burnt out, <laughs> suffering mm. from mental health issues. And it's kind of this thing that's we don't talk about very often, but I think we probably need to because it's actually really bad if activists get burnt out. Well, of course, for, for them as people, and then for the movements that they're participating in, because then they can no longer contribute as effectively. Yeah. And so I think for me, a few of the things like um, mindfulness was a game changer for me because the first time, you know, I, I developed a greater capacity to not have to identify with thoughts that come up and that creates space to be able to, um, yeah, choose whether you want to follow a thought train um, which mm. is sometimes skillful and sometimes unskillful. You can allow thoughts to just arise and appear without having to feel like you're attached to them or feeling like you have to believe them. Uh, whereas if you don't have a capacity to be mindful, you just identify with every thought, follow every thought train, and there's less of that degree to be able to um, calm the mind uh, when you when it's skillful to do so. Mm. Um, and I think... It, it took a couple of um, consistent budget cuts um, for me to start thinking about, which is really an Eastern, uh, an idea from Eastern spirituality, um, which is non-attachment. And yeah. by that, really, I think there's, it's really difficult to do, um, but reducing your attachment on outcome whilst going all in on process. And so mm. you bring your full heart and passion to what you're working on and seeking to um, express the, the world that you want to see within your life, within the tactics, within how you operate in the world. And then whilst you're doing that, you release yourself from things that you have like either no or very little control over, like mm -hmm. the outcomes. Like it's really ultimately to the expenditure review committee if they want to increase international development. And uh, we can do all that we can and seek to learn and become more strategic at how we do that. But ultimately, it's their decision. And the question is, like, how much, uh, how much am I willing to allow myself to deteriorate in my mental health um, because of a, a decision that someone else is making that I can't control? Um, so I think whilst I think it's normal to be disappointed if that happens and even angry, um, but I think we can take steps to reduce our attachment to that and that can build a greater equanimity and acceptance of uh, what we can change and what we can't change and 
um, that can help with uh, positive mental health uh, amidst kind of the, um, the the bustle of campaigning. Yeah, I, I really love that sentiment so much, Jody. Um, yeah, I think it's so so fascinating how yeah, just the we we want to do in some ways like things that require just so many people and a relatively super, almost like superhuman, but there is this very human aspect to it to, to, to all of us because we do have like our physical limitations and particularly our mental and emotional limitations yeah. i might actually leave it there jody on because i really like that sentiment that you've expressed so much and i suppose how um, effective it is i think for all of us to be able to to um reconcile that so thank you so much jody um is there anything in particular you want to um promote in, re- in relation to the the campaign for australian aid no, nothing particularly I'm looking to promote um, other, but I do want to say, you know, really appreciate you having me. Uh, I think what you're doing is awesome and promoting education around the SDGs. And I think that, you know, in all of us in our own little ways can be doing what we can to be promoting the world that we want to seek, um, living that out. I think we can get closer to that world and, and that's an exciting prospect.